Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast podcast is my friend Nicole Herway. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. We're going to talk about domestic violence and divorce. Um, This is the podcast we talk about difficult topics, um, so we better understand. Um, Nicole is going to talk about her marriage that ended and being a survivor of domestic violence. And um, obviously divorce, she's a mother of two, active active LDS, and is a licensed clinical social worker. Um, But the the goal of this podcast is to reach those of you that might be in the middle of a very difficult relationship and wondering if it is a difficult relationship or if it's just your fault. And I'm wondering if it is not your fault, um, how do I address this? Is it right to leave the relationship? The podcast might also be helpful for you, family and friends that are aware of somebody you love that you think is in an abusive or difficult relationship and wondering what are the signs of that and should I get involved? And it's possible if you're actually the abuser um, that this podcast will help you look inward um, and see the things you need to do to change the situation. Is that okay for an introduction? Yes, that's good. Let me tell you a little bit more about Nicole. She um, grew up in Europe. Um a family that was there serving our government, um, eventually made her way to BYU where she has a degree in recreational therapy and then went on to the University of Utah, has a master's in social work. And as I mentioned, is a clinical licensed social worker. And we'll put her website if you want to connect with her um, or at least her contact information. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about the practice the type of focus of your private practice? Yeah. So I specialize in trauma and attachment issues. And so I always tell people I work with um, relationship trauma. So that could be if you're struggling with um, a difficult relationship with a parent or a sibling or a partner or a child. And I work with individuals or families or I run groups as well, just trying to help people figure out, yeah, like you said, if the relationship is something that can be saved or how to heal from it after they've, after they've left. And, um, you were also the former director of the women's shelter in Park City. Yeah. (laughs) When I hear that, I think of just frontline raw trauma where someone in a very difficult situation is reaching out for perhaps life-saving help. Yeah, exactly. And so I loved working like that with the nonprofit world. And then what I realized when I was there was that there wasn't a lot of Um, long-term treatment for relationship trauma. So I transitioned to private practice so that I can have clients work with me for however long they need to. And listeners, I think this is great. Nicole's on the podcast because she has this academic experience, this clinical experience with things like you've done at Park City and then your real life experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm really glad Nicole's on the podcast and we get to hear from her. And I think your marriage ended about two years ago and you have, were married for about seven years. You're in your early thirties. And um, so I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you to introduce the podcast. And um, Nicole has about eight myths. I like the way she set this up. She has an outline and it's just myths. As I've read her outline, it's the myths are terrific. And then the truth, I think she'll set up the myth and then go through the truth. And I like the format. So buckle in, you'll hear eight myths and the truth. And we both just invite you to learn and listen and then act on impressions 
that you feel regarding how this this content applies to your individual situation. Thank you so much. Yeah. So as you said, I I'm sharing my story um, from both a personal experience and also from a kind of an education perspective. Um, and so, yeah, my goal here is not necessarily to get into the details of what happened, but so that someone who's listening, whether they are in a relationship or just out of one or have a family that member that they're concerned about or a friend, or if there's someone who's wondering, like, is it me? Am I doing this to my partner or someone I love can get some education behind them? So just like you said, I'll kind of go through these eight myths that I became aware of as I was kind of going through my relationship and then also my studies as well. And then I'll share what the truth is and then kind of illustrate it through patterns that I saw in my own relationship. And I just, I like the way, I hope you caught that, that this isn't, um, Nicole's not on the podcast to just throw her former spouse under the bus and and sort of pile on in a public way to the reality of of their marriage that's ended. And I think there's grace there, but I think it's appropriate to talk about this. And I, so I yeah. think you're doing this in the very best possible way to help others. And I think that's a good thing. So keep going. Okay. I, I hope so. So the first one that I wanted to share was, um, and this is, these are all myths that I heard um, afterwards. So I think it's important to know that, you know, I'm, I'm someone who went to graduate school. I practice in psychotherapy. And even there in my studies, domestic violence isn't something that's spoken of very often in the media, or if it is, it's got a lot of stigma around it. So some of the things I had thought myself, and I've heard from other people as well, is that there's a lot of, um, a lot of people who think that for domestic violence to happen, that it has to happen if among like low income or minority people or um, people where they have less education or come from broken homes themselves. And so my hope is that by hearing my story, it's good to see that like it can happen among anybody. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter the level of education you are. It's kind of one of these things where like even the plumber has a broken toilet sometimes. I mean, I'm a therapist and even it happened to me. So it really is, it's, it's more common than you think. And I think that's why it's important to listen to this and to wonder, is there anyone in my life right now who may be going through this? And I may, may need to pay closer attention to the signs. One of the statistics I wanted to share was from the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. They share that in Utah, the, um, we actually have a higher rate of domestic violence than the national average, which may surprise some people. The national average is one in four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. And in Utah, it's one in three women. Wow. If you think about it, if you think of all the women that you know, one in three on average have experienced some type of domestic violence. The other thing is to consider there's a lot of terms in the world of domestic violence. So sometimes you'll hear people say violence or abuse, domestic violence. Another one is intimate partner violence. That's for someone you're in a dating relationship or married relationship with. Another one you'll hear a lot on social media is toxic relationship. Um, so for the purpose of the podcast, I use the term abuse to describe what happened, but this may apply to people who feel like they're in um, a difficult situation, maybe with someone they live with, which would count as domestic violence or someone that they're in a dating relationship that they keep referring to as it's a very toxic relationship. That's one to especially pay attention to that the term abuse may actually apply to you as well. So like we talked about, I'm going to share myths and then truths and then a little bit about my story. So the second myth is that abusers will show red flags while dating. 
after my marriage ended in divorce, that was one of the most common myths people said is, didn't you see the red flags? Or other people would tell me, oh, I saw the red flags, didn't you? And I think it's very important to know that talking about it or assuming that there were red flags is very unhelpful. What is helpful is to assume that the person made the best choice they could with the information they had. And nobody starts a marriage hoping it will end in divorce. And so people usually think very long and hard about what they want in a partner and are specifically looking for certain things. And so that's the truth is that um, abusers sometimes may show red flags, but oftentimes they're actually very good at masking them. Um, partners can sometimes be the mo- very romantic, very charming. They meet all of your emotional needs and they, a lot of people feel like this is the person I've wanted all along and they, they're exactly what I want. And that was the case for me. Um, I had dated a lot. I was 26 when I got married. And so I felt like I had some experience. I dated a variety of people for different durations of time. And I was constantly, I was in graduate school. So I was looking at his attachment needs, his, how he managed his anger and things like that. And I thought I had done a great job uh, picking someone that um, was very committed to the relationship and worked hard to build one that was healthy for us while we were dating. Um, and so for anyone who's wondering like, did I miss any red flags? The answer is you may have and you may not have, but it's hard to know until you're in it. And so feeling guilt about what you didn't pay attention to or didn't doesn't really help much except to educate you for future dating prospects as well. It's a really, I'm guilty of that. Because <laughs> um, I think my assumption was in all these relationships that are abusive is there were red flags. And if the partner that's the survivor of the abuse or people around them had seen the red flags, it wouldn't have happened. But I think you're helping me understand that in some situations, there were no red flags. No. And all the challenges sort of happened later. Yeah. And I don't know what to call that, a period of time to mask the reality of the personality that then eventually came out. But I realized for the first time that that would be very shaming and sort of you have to re- justify all your pain um and it just makes you feel stupid if someone says did you miss the red flags like i saw them or they were there yeah so instead of sort of sitting with someone in their pain they're sort of feeling guilty for their pain Mm -hmm. yeah and it ends up being something that validates the person who's saying that rather than the person who's experiencing the hardship yeah so that's explain that just a little bit yeah so sometimes when a relationship ends it's very it feels very good to hear be able to say to someone, oh, I, I called it kind of like people do with investing in the stock market or the housing market or things like that. Like it makes us feel good and competent as people when we are smart enough to call something. And so usually when you have someone who says, oh, I, I knew that marriage would never work out or I knew that relationship would never work out. You're usually saying that so that you feel better and not the person who's going through the difficult relationship. And so what you want is yeah, if someone's going through a hard time to withhold judgment and withhold shaming and just say, I'm here, this must be so hard. How can I help you? And then let the concept of red flag be a bygone because at this point it doesn't help anyone. I like that segment. Thank you. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> so the third myth is that, and this was something I definitely, definitely did not understand. I always thought that domestic violence was just like the movies where it was like very intense and there was like punching or kicking and very violent. 
that's all I had seen. I didn't see domestic violence in my own home or in my siblings' relationships. I had never seen it before. So I didn't really understand that there are different types of abuse. And so I shared with you a resource called the Power and Control Wheel. And it talks about how um, there are several types of psychological abuse that typically occur before physical abuse. Because if you think about it, if you're dating someone and everything's fine and all of a sudden they start physical abuse, it's such a stark contrast that it becomes very easy to leave. So what abusers do, and I think not always consciously, sometimes very subconsciously, is they start doing small, more passive forms of abuse um, that are psychological in nature. So they may use coercion or threats, intimidation. They may use economic abuse, using male privilege, using children. They may minimize, deny, blame. They may use isolation or they may use emotional abuse. And that may go on for a period of time until they feel like they're their victim is stripped of the sense of self enough that they can then move on to physical or sexual abuse. So for me, um, I, my first incident of psychological abuse was about eight months into the marriage. Um, there had been periods of lying, like very clear lying. And I knew lying was a defense mechanism. And so rather than seeing it as like a, a bad thing or a big, a big problem, I just saw it as a need to protect himself. So when I confronted him and said, like, it's okay for you to tell the truth, like, let's talk about it. Um, Rather than engaging in communication, he started some of these psychological abusive things. So emotional abuse and uh, intimidation, minimizing, denying, blaming. And it was very ungrounding for me uh, because I started to wonder, well, maybe I am overreacting. Maybe, maybe it is me. Maybe I am the problem. And so over the course of the next six years, psychological abuse was the primary form of abuse for me um, because what it did is it stripped away who I was and made me doubt my own thoughts and my own reality. And pretty soon I was living in a very distorted form of what was normal and what wasn't. So yeah, that's important to know if you're, if you're in a relationship where someone is using threats or coercion um, or manipulation, one that was very common for me was intimidation. I'm about a hundred pounds lighter than my former spouse. And so there was not much I could do. If I said, Hey, I need a break. You know, you're getting kind of loud. I'm going to leave the room. He would use his body to block or stop me. Um, but when I would say, you know, you're controlling me and you're abusing me, he would say, this is an abuse. I'm just making you stay and you have to talk to me. You're not allowed to leave, which at the time I thought initially, well, he really wants to talk. So we should talk, but it wasn't, it wasn't actually talking. It was just Emotion, more emotional abuse. And I realized afterwards that intimidation was one of the very first ways that he used to control me and abuse me because I wasn't free to leave the house or the room. I had to stay. I like you sharing that example. Um, and on behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for your courage just to be so vulnerable yeah. and real and honestly really brave. Yeah. Um, talk about male privilege. That's a term I'm trying to it's recently come in my vocabulary, but I'm not sure I could totally understand it. Yeah. Will you talk about that? And if you would also, you didn't list spiritual abuse, but will you talk about that too? Yeah. So that's one that's not listed on the power and control wheel, but I do oh, think... maybe it comes, if it comes up later, you can punt on that one. <laughs> no, it's good. It does not on the official Domestic Violence Coalition website, but it is one that occurs and definitely very much um, in our 
in our religion, yeah. um, especially like the concept of head of the household or the leader of the home, this concept of a one up, one down mentality. And I think it's important to illustrate that this even happens in reverse where females abuse males um, because some males have kind of a deferential attitude in their marriage where in order to keep the wife happy, happy, they'll do like whatever it takes to make that happen. So um, typically it is male privilege. And so that's why we call it that. But it's this concept of I have authority over you. I have more power over you. Another one I've heard a lot in the domestic violence world is um, I'm more rational than you. This kind of stigma of women are dramatic and sensitive and overreactive, whereas men are rational and grounded. Um, When really, when you look at the dynamics, they're just as irrational. It's just covered under male privilege. So it's very common. Thank you. Um, That's a great segment too. So you can go on to the next myth if you want to, unless there's anything you want to add on myth three. Um, No, I think the only thing I would say to myth three is that... um, It's a really important thing to notice this if you're the family or friends. So if you notice um, someone is kind of being directive or they're not speaking equally to each other, this was the thing that my friends and family started to notice first was a lot of minimizing, denying, blaming, and then also that I would cover for my partner and lie for him in order to protect him because that was safer than going home and being abused. So I chose to lie rather than tell the truth because ultimately it kept me and my kids safer. So this is an important one to realize as the family and friends is that it's not always just physical. It's usually primarily psychologically at first for a while. And another term that just came to mind that I don't know if it goes in this space, but gaslighting. Yes. Will you talk about, will you define that for our listeners and if it fits into this category? Yes. Gaslighting is something we talk about a lot. So gaslighting is where if you have an issue with someone and you bring it to them and they flip it so that the issue is now you, that's called gaslighting. So an example would be if you go to your partner and say, hey, I've noticed this week um, we've gone over budget with eating out. Can we relook at the budget and work it again? And the abusive partner would see that as an attack on them. And so they'll flip it back on you and say, you're so controlling you micromanage me. How dare you? I need the freedom to eat out. Don't you dare talk to me like that. Even, even maybe not even that aggressively, but just like, oh, you're so controlling. It's fine. It's one week. We'll recover. No big deal. When really the original partner who was talking about it was trying to have a communication of, can we work together? Can we communicate? Are we on the same page? Do we have the same goals? So the original partner's bid for connection and communication in turn gets gaslit back on them. And they start to think, well, maybe I am controlling. It is just one week. He's right. What's, what is the big deal? When really the issue isn't eating out or the budget at all. It's this pattern of, I have something I need to bring to you. And the person says, well, the fact that you're even bringing this to me means you're, you're the problem. So that's something I heard a lot was that my efforts to budget or parent or plan or communicate were issues with me and that I was being difficult. Um, th- that's a really good segment too. Um, I think of, you may be thinking, listeners, of where the things that um, Nicole is teaching us apply to other relationship situations, like work situation where you got a boss and a, a subordinate. Is that what we call somebody that reports to a boss or coworkers? And some of these principles may help us just improve our work situation, even church relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have leaders and we're in 
charge, I guess, as a male leader. Sometimes we might, there might be things we hear if you're a, a local leader, a male or female leader that help you just do a better job of leadership. We're not going to really go down that road, but I just be okay thinking about that in the context of if I'm in a leadership position, can I do a better job because of some of the things Nicole's suggesting? Yeah, that's a really good point to highlight. We call that workplace trauma or ecclesiastical trauma. So those are really good terms to bring up. And like I said, these what we're talking about goes for any relationship. The example I'm sharing is intimate partner violence, but any form of abuse would qualify under that. And um, yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up that if there's any relationship where you don't feel it's safe to bring up a concern with a partner and that they won't validate that and safely communicate about that with you, then you may be looking at a, a relationship of any form that's abusive. And now you're going to get me going on just a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> um, cause I, I don't know if I practiced ecclesiastical abuse, but I probably gaslit some people yeah. <laughs> and some when they came to me in some of my callings, just with concerns about issues. And I sort of, you know, whether it was whatever it was, church history or current issues or something uncomfortable about, I probably put it back on them, just like you're talking about and made it about them and their perhaps not being faithful because if they were really faithful, they wouldn't ask these questions. Mm -hmm. And they were coming to me with questions out of love and concern and wanted a safe ecclesiastical leader to turn to. And I've tried to repent, do better in that. Yeah. But it's, I, I wish I'd heard some of the things you had suggested earlier. Yes. And that's why I'm glad you're on the podcast. So now we'll end that tangent because <laughs> that's another podcast. Yeah, that's a good one. And just turn it back to you. Okay. Thank you. So yeah, myth number four is that abusers are mentally ill, survivors of abuse themselves, or have anger issues, but ultimately they do love you. And this is an important one to realize is for the longest time, I really did think that I was loved. Um, but someone told me the phrase, it's actually called counterfeit love because true love does not, does not mimic abuse. True love mimics actual love and kindness. And so that was a hard one for me to swallow was that I was actually potentially never actually loved in my marriage because people you love, you don't treat that way. And a lot of abusers will rationalize their abuse and say, well, yeah, I have anger issues, but I really love her. And my answer is, that's not love. Never has been and never will be. So Lundy Bancroft is very famous in the domestic violence world. Um, he works exclusively with perpetrators, so those committing abuse. And he has spent a long time studying them. And he has a really good book called Why Does He Do That? And it's all about understanding the minds of abusers, because for a long time, this was one of the common myths is that, well, people who abuse must have be depressed or anxious or have a mental disorder or just they're just angry or it's their own childhood trauma coming up. But it's really not the issue at all. And he says the issue is the attitude, the belief that they have a right to intimidate or harm you. When I finally understood that, that it wasn't you know, his anger issues or a mental illness or his own insecurities. It really was, he just had an attitude that he had a right to do whatever he wanted to me. As long as he got what he wanted, it didn't matter what it meant to me. And this follows this pattern that we call the cycle of abuse. So what happens is, again, right, if someone is abusing you, you would think, oh, I would leave. But there's this pattern where for a period of time, this tension builds. They're kind of on edge. Work is stressful. They had a hard day. They didn't sleep well. 
And as a victim, you start to notice this cycle and you do everything you can to lower the tension back down. But ultimately, you can't do it. You can't prevent it. And eventually it turns into an abusive episode of whatever degree, whether that's psychological abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I never encountered sexual abuse, so I can't speak to that, but it would follow that same pattern. And then afterwards, there's this thing called the honeymoon period where they actually come back and they are the nicest people you've ever met. Um, when, when we were married, this would happen all the time. I would notice the tension, try my darndest to bring it back down. But ultimately I was just hoping the abusive episode would happen at night and that it would be over quickly. And then it was always great the next day because flowers would show up. He'd show up with my favorite treat. He would clean, he would cook, he would do laundry. He would come back with words of affirmation. And it felt like I had the person I had dated back. And that was so reassuring to my nervous system that it then sets you up to have the cycle continue. So what happens with this cycle of abuse is that it increases in frequency and intensity over time. And sometimes even in duration where the abusive episodes can start to last longer. And that's an important thing to realize that I didn't realize that until the sixth year of marriage was the first year we were married. It was one episode of psychological abuse. And then the second year, it was the first year of physical abuse. And it happened one time. And again, it was not a punch. I think it's important to illustrate what my first physical abuse incident looked like so you can understand why it was so confusing and I didn't leave right then because it involved him being upset with me for something I didn't even know I had done to upset him. And he yelled at me, which he had done before. And by this point, I was desensitized to. I just thought he was an angry man, but loved me. And then he grabbed my arms on the upper arms and he shook me and then kind of shoved me into a dresser. So at the time I thought, wow, that was, it was very angry. I must've really done something wrong. And you better believe after that, I avoided the thing that had made him do that as much as I could. But those incidences started to happen more and more and he started to get more and more violent. So it led to things as extreme as like my head being thrown into a fridge, his head ramming into my face, being thrown on the floor, very extreme physical violence. Um, but remember it took six years to get there. So the very first one, you're kind of just in shock. And I want to talk about the four trauma responses as well. The first one, well, there's four. So there's freeze. We talk a lot about fight or flight, but there's actually four. There's freeze where you just kind of freeze up and can't do anything. The second one is flee, meaning to run away or try to leave the scene. Um, the fourth one is fight where you resist or physically fight the abuser. And then the last one they've just added, which is called the fawn response, where you try to fix things. So initially that first incident of physical abuse, I had a freeze response. I just froze. I just stayed there. I, and he left the room and I don't know how much time passed. And eventually I just brushed my teeth and went to bed. I was in so much shock. Over time, I started to try to leave the room more and more when he would do it. So I would try to run away, but again, he would block my exit and it would continue the abuse. And then I went through about three years where I used a lot of the fawn response. So after he had an abusive episode, I came back with more love and more affection and let's get you therapy and let's help you. And I should feed you more food and just anything I could think of to help him. And then ultimately I had all four trauma responses and I did fight also. And that's something that I'll talk about um, in myth number five, which um, we'll bring up in a moment. But Again, the thing I want to highlight is that cycle of abuse has a honeymoon period. So you start to form this thing called a trauma bond. 
where you've now bonded with your abuser and you feel like it's your responsibility to fix them and to help them. So one of the things I want to talk about with dating also is that I was wondering why, why was I chosen to be this partner for the abuser? And I've learned through education and talking with many, many survivors is that abusers like to pick partners who are very empathetic and kind because they'll be very forgiving. And they also really like to pick a, like partners who are smart and hardworking and capable because they know that when they are weak and when they can't do life well, that their partner will rise up. And so at our, during our marriage, in order to try to prevent abusive episodes, I worked two part-time jobs. I raised our kids basically on my own. I did all the cleaning, the cooking, the grocery shopping. I was in charge of the finances. I was doing everything and anything to try to prevent his episodes. So that's something to look for in a family or friend is if you feel like they're doing the bulk of the work or they're taking on too much work or they live in fear of their partner's reactions, that's something to pay attention to because they may be in an abusive situation. Um, The last one to talk about with this myth is about suicide. A lot of abusers will threaten suicide. It's actually a very common tactic. This was the case for me as well. He started to threaten to die by suicide a few years into the marriage. And again, as a therapist and as a wife, I was concerned and I felt like I knew how to handle suicide. So I was handling it all the ways I would have with a client and was supportive of him going to therapy and getting treatment, but he would never go or he would go for one session, come home and say he was all better. And I knew that that wasn't possible. And so over time, I learned that he was using suicide as a form of control, saying, if you don't do this, I will kill myself. If you act like this, I will kill myself. And so it wasn't about the suicide. It was about manipulating me and controlling me and keeping me in fear. This is, that's a really good myth. Um, listeners, a couple of things that popped out to me is this quote, the, the issue is the attitude, the belief they have a right to intimidate or harm you. Because until you spoke, I would have thought there was something different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about it in those terms, it really puts the responsibility on the abuser to address this, not the person being abused. Yeah. This is a choice. Yeah. And there's agency here. Um, I like, um, I want to ask you a question. Are all abusers narcissists? That's a little vocabulary. We did, the reason I asked that is episode 534, uh, Marie Cook talked about a narcissistic relationship. And I just, just if listeners have heard that episode or have heard that term, he or she is a narcissist, just kind of give us context for that yeah. in the context of abusers. Yeah. So I'll take a clinical perspective on that yeah. one, which is that there's something called narcissistic traits. And then there's something called narcissistic personality disorder. So when you're working with narcissistic personality disorder, that's a personality disorder. And one of the things I hear a lot is, especially like in the dating world, now that I'm in the dating world, I'll hear my former spouse, if it's a male, will say my former spouse had borderline personality disorder. Or if it's a female, she'll say my ex had narcissistic personality disorder. And I like to provide some education there and educate people that personality disorders are actually very rare. And they are not um, easily diagnosed unless there's a full psychological evaluation. So if you're reading Google or watching a TikTok video about the traits of narcissism or the traits of borderline personality disorder and decide to diagnose yourself, your own former spouse or partner, chances are quite high that they may have borderline traits or narcissistic traits, but not the full personality disorder. 
Another thing to keep in mind is that some of the traits of borderline, a lot of us have, (laughs) and a lot of traits of narcissism, we also all have. Um, Particularly with narcissism, I always say like we're survivalistic by nature as human beings. So we usually do our best to get our needs met. So I don't think my former spouse had narcissistic personality disorder, nor do I think he was a narcissist. However, I do think he was the center of his world. And that can happen for a lot of us. So that's important to differentiate. And if you're wondering about that, getting a full psychological evaluation is the best way to tell that. But it's definitely something to be very careful about using clinical terms when describing normative, though unhealthy behaviors. Thank you. That was terrific. Yeah. All right. The fifth myth is that victims provoke their abuse. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to. The one thing you said that, you know, in the experience I have with people that have been in these difficult relationships, they are some of the people that you described, empathy, compassion, um, very high functioning. And I, and I think it's good if you're in the middle of this relationship to look at yourself the way Nicole just described you. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps it's some of your gifts that have got you. I, I don't quite know how to word that, but. I like anything where you can look at yourself in a better light in a difficult situation. So you don't think it's your fault and what did I do wrong? And this is, and you've been gaslit to the point where it's just all your fault, if I'm using that term right. Yeah. So I love that section where you recognize that part of the reason I got in this relationship is some of my Christ like attributes Mm -hmm. that my abuser recognized. Yeah. And I think that that's terrific. And I think that gives hope to people that are in difficult situations when they're wondering, why me? Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Now, I promise not to interrupt. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Exactly. So just like you said, they, they typically don't choose partners who are combative or argumentative or um, uneducated or uh, lazy, right? They, they do thrive off of high-functioning partners. And so what... Um, what a common thing is they will gaslight you to the point where you think that the abuse is your fault. Like I said, for me, I started to think, well, I must be really hard to live with. Um, what was helpful to me was to go back and I had a friend who said, but have you ever had a roommate who said that about you? Have your friends ever said that about you? Because I had lost my sense of self. My identity was based on who he had made me believe that I was, which was someone I had never been before and haven't been since. So really what they do is they try to strip you of that sense of identity and they try to make you think that this is really all your fault. They've gaslit you to that um, point. And I, a lot of times would have in-laws visit and my, um, my abuser was from a family culture where abuse was normalized. And so his mother had endured the same type of marriage with her own husband. So my father-in-law and she had a lot of advice for me about how to get through it. Um, and again, not to speak poorly of anyone, but to illustrate that sometimes family members wanting to save the marriage will actually perpetuate or enable the abuse. So I was given very unhealthy advice about how to survive the abusive marriage. And that's a very important thing to talk about because for her to live through her marriage, she had given up herself for the marriage. And would tell me often that I needed to love more and forgive more, which again, perpetuated the cycle because again, I thought it was my fault. So one thing that helped me was to remember the 
two greatest commandments to love God. And then the second one is to love our neighbors like ourselves. And I had forgotten about the like ourselves part. (laughs) I just thought I was supposed to love God and love everyone else, but I had forgotten how to love myself. And he had set up a world where it was very hard to remember who that person was even to love. And so this quote from Sister Aileen Clyde um, in the October 1991 General Conference has been really helpful for me. It's in the November 1991 Ensign. And I'll read the quote and highlight my favorite part about it. But this helped me understand that I was actually charitable as a person, but that did not mean I had to stay and perpetually forgive a situation that was only getting worse. She says, if charity is not always quick to our understanding, it may occasionally be quick to our misunderstanding. It is not charity or kindness to endure any type of abuse or unrighteousness that may be inflicted on us by others. God's commandment that as we love him, we must respect ourselves suggests we must not accept disrespect from others. It is not charity to let another repeatedly deny our divine nature and agency. It is not charity to bow down in despair and helplessness. That kind of suffering should be ended, and that is very difficult to do alone. There are loving servants of God who will give aid and strength when they know of the need. We must be willing to let others help us. So this changed my perspective from in order to love, I must forgive to in order to love, I must be in a situation where I can love myself and others. And I love that part of her quote. It's not charity to let another repeatedly deny our divine nature and agency. Again, which goes back to my pattern as a victim, which was my divine nature was constantly being put down and denied. I was seen as an object to kind of take the brunt of his emotions and his attitude. And many, many times my agency was denied. My request for yelling not to be in my ears or for his hands to be off of me or for me to be able to leave a room was constantly denied. And it was actually the most charitable, kind, loving thing for me to say no and put an end to it. So another one that I wanted to talk about was this last response, the fight, the fight response, because what I hear a lot in the domestic violence world is, well, I fought him too, so I'm no better than he is. But I think it's important to understand that from a legal and an ethical perspective, that's not how the courts view it. Um, so I'll read this quote by Elder Kieran. He just shared in a April 2022 general conference talk, he has risen with healing in his wings. He talks a lot about this kind of trauma response to fight. And so I'll quote him and then talk a little bit about it. He says, you are not less worthy or less valuable or less loved as a human being or as a daughter or son of God because of what someone else has done to you. There is no place for any kind of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, or verbal in any home, in any country, this is important, or any culture. Nothing a wife, child, or husband might do or say makes them deserve to be beaten. No one in any country or culture, notice he says that twice, is ever asking for aggression or violence from someone else in authority or by someone who is bigger and stronger. So I wanted to talk about this because this answers a very big question that a lot of survivors have about the guilt that they feel for fighting their perpetrator or for people who rationalize the abuse of a child because it's normal in their culture or because the child did something, or the wife did something, or the husband did something that merited abuse. He clarifies 
that there is not a thing that you do or say that makes anyone deserve to be beaten. And there is no culture where this is accepted as members of the church. We need to treat people with respect and there's never a place for violence or abuse of any kind. So something that I learned in the courts was um, that what he talks about, that if you're experiencing aggression by someone in authority or by someone who is bigger and stronger, that that's how the courts determine who is the perpetrator and who is the victim. So again, to share something vulnerable, but it's also a legal document at this point, is during the hearing when I had asked for a a permanent protective order, um, the story was that he was an abuser. That was my story. And his story was that I was an abuser. And when we reviewed the stories of both of us. The judge determined that, in fact, he was the abuser and I was the victim because he used his strength and his size and his authority multiple times to control me. Um, many incidences where I was resisting him were my efforts to get out the door, to get out of his hands, to get out from his body weight. A common thing was I would be pinned down and there was nothing I could do. And so I would thrash around and try to fight. And it's true. I did. I did try to fight by the end. And for the longest time, I felt so guilty that I was no better than he was. But through the court system, through further education, and also I really appreciated this talk, I was able to understand that um, that's a normal response when someone who's bigger and stronger than you is trying to hurt you to want to get away. And so if someone is wondering if they are abusers also because they fought their abuser, what I would say is, was that person in a position in authority over you? And were they bigger and stronger? And then the last thing that I would add is, was your intent to harm them or was it to get away? And if that's something that you're struggling with, I hope you'll hear this section of the podcast and understand that your trauma response is normal and you were not the perpetrator. You were trying to keep yourself safe and get out of a bad situation. And that I'm so sorry you have to go through that or had to go through that or that you have a family member going through that. But that's very important to understand. And that's what therapy is for and group support is for, is that you can find the healing and come back to your true self who would never do anything like that. Thank you, Nicole. You have a gift of communication. Good. (laughs) Um, There's... I'm just appreciative of you sharing your personal experiences with the vocabulary you have from your professional experience. It's very helpful. Yeah. And it's one of your gifts in this space. Listeners, I've never heard um, this quote from Sister Clyde. It's from 1991. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's a terrific quote. Um, a whole Elder's Quorum Release Study lesson could be built around that quote as we're trying to do better. And Elder Kieran's talk, of course, we'll link to that. Um, a couple thoughts came to my mind is I love, I love the way you're looking at the intent of any physical conflict. And then I thought even at to protect yourself or your kids, you may at times be doing whatever quote you're doing that may be labeled in a court document as abuse as protecting yourself and your kids. Mm-hmm. And then I thought of priesthood leaders. I think um, bishops may come with a bias that my job is to save the marriage. Um, and that may in situations, um, not be the right thing, and it may add to the burden of the uh, person being abused with the things we say. That's why I like Elder Kieran's talk and some of the more education we're giving priest leaders. But I think I don't want to give bishops advice on this, but I think our, I would, if I were in a situation, I'm not, 
if I were a home ward bishop and a couple came to me, I probably wouldn't be prescriptive in the sense my my goal here or as I leave enter that interview or leave that interview is to save this marriage. Mm-hmm. My goal is to um, bring resources for this couple to understand their situation and solve it mm-hmm. and them self-determine what is the best way to solve this yeah. versus me sort of with my limited understanding and I'm not clinically trained, so I would have no idea how to deal with it. Sixth, I would like marriages to succeed and I would even, and you've probably had this happen, remind you of your eternal covenants and you sort of then feel an extra obligation to to try to keep this marriage together because it's an eternal marriage. Verse. Mm-hmm. So I know you know all that, but I just, just some thoughts for people that are counseling people in these kind of situations that perhaps we should, you know, not necessarily have a specific agenda yes. as much as laying down principles and understanding and collect, connecting the right resources. Yes. And you bring up a really good point to refer back to Lundy Bancroft, who works with perpetrators. One of the common misconceptions for ecclesiastical leaders, family members, as friends, is if there's ever a relationship problems, that the next step is couples counseling. And in fact, couples counseling is what we call contraindicated. If there is abuse in the marriage, the reason is because triangulation will become part of the treatment. So where the abuser will present well in treatment, and it's very hard, trust me, as a therapist to tell what's going on for a while. And so if you have an abuser who presents well and seems great, and the, per, the victim by this point is so stripped of their sense of self and their nervous system is shot after years and years and years of abuse, that they will present as the reactive partner and you'll misdiagnose what the issue is. So one of the things that happened to us is we went to an ecclesiastical leader to try to talk about what was happening. And it was a triangulation situation where my nervous system was shot and I was very tearful and he seemed calm and collected. So the bishop recommended therapy for me and couples counseling for us. When actually now that I know more, if you are an ecclesiastical leader, and a couple comes to you with an issue, the first question I would ask in my mind is, are they both safe? And if the answer is no, then you need to go down the road of safety and save all of the other counseling for when they've both become safe again. So in therapy, I usually, when I'm working with a couple, if I'm assessing for safety and they do not sound safe together, I recommend individual counseling for both partners until they have had six months with zero incidences of any type of abuse. No physical, no sexual, no emotional, no verbal. After six months of no abuse, I will then assess for readiness for couples therapy. Now, there may be some people who disagree with me, but again, working as a previous couples therapist and a current relationship trauma therapist and also having worked in domestic violence for some time now, that would be my recommendation. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Yes. Another myth is that if someone ever hurt me, I would leave immediately. As I've talked about before, there's that cycle of abuse where abuse sometimes I have worked with some people where, you know, on the honeymoon it started or, you know, shortly after a certain period of time of having a serious relationship, the abuse began. But there's a reason that the cycle of abuse is, you know, supported by the research. Um, It really does take a long time. One of my favorite examples to give to people is think of that frog and water concept. If you you throw a frog into boiling water, the frog will jump right out. What happens is that the abuser takes their time slowly turning up the water until the frog doesn't even realize they're in it. So keep in mind that when we first got married again, the first year it was one episode of psychological abuse. 
The second year was one episode of physical abuse with a few psychological abuse episodes there. By the sixth year of marriage, abusive episodes physically and psychologically were happening at least once a week, if not more. Um, Another thing to consider is that as imperceptible as the changes are in abuse, that uh, abusers get more talented at figuring out how to not be found out because by this point, sometimes their abuse has legal implications and can become dangerous. So they'll do everything that they can to keep their victims silent. And that was one thing that was used on me. Like I said, with that power and control wheel, the concept of using children was one that was used often. The last myth we kind of talked about, again, which could come up in ecclesiastical situation, which is that people fight. It's normal to fight. I heard this a lot from in-laws, relatives, siblings, ecclesiastical leaders, neighbors. Um, I still remember one night a friend shared that she and her husband had fought. And I asked, could you tell me a little more about the fight? And she was like, well, it's kind of personal. And I was like, I know, but could you just tell me a little bit about what a normal fight is for you? Because I was trying to figure out if the way that we fought was different than the way other people fought. And I'll never forget. She said, oh, it was a really bad fight. I got really mad at my husband and I told him to shut up. And she started crying and she said, can you believe I talked to my husband that way? And I thought, oh, wow, if that's what you think is bad, you must think what I go through must be really bad. So I want to normalize that it's actually not normal to fight in a relationship. Um, And if there is fighting again, it's important to assess for safety, whether you're in the relationship or you're watching someone else go through it. One of the statistics that I found very interesting was by the CDC. They reported that over half of female homicides in the U.S. are from an intimate partner. So that's over half. You're more likely to be killed by your partner than anyone else, which is incredible. And I didn't realize just how dangerous my situation was. There was a weapon involved. There were threats of suicide involved. And I didn't understand the connection between weapons and homicide, again, because my reality was so distorted. Um, But I, over time, started to gain some strength and education and awareness and started to remember who I was more and more over time. And I did have the strength to call the police one time for a verbal abuse incident. And I called and said that it would become physical if they didn't come soon. So they showed up and at the time he had a weapon in his hand. And so the police asked him to drop his weapon and he refused, which led to uh, the police having to do what they needed to do to make the situation safe. And when they talked with me, the officer said, he said, in all seriousness, um, and, I, and it was a quote that I wrote down, so I'll share it. The officer said, if he's willing to talk to a police officer that way, I can't even imagine how he talks to you when you resist him. And that's kind of what helped me realize that at this point, we were in a lethal situation for me and my children. And this wasn't an issue of anger or a difficult time or someone who was struggling. Like at this point, we needed to get out. And so the officer walked me through how to get an emergency protective order and recommended I do that and walked me through um, the need to get a permanent protective order after that. So I'm really grateful to that officer for giving me some education and helping me see that he's right. If he was willing to do that to a police officer, it really was that much worse, a hundred times worse at home. And so that gave me the courage to file for uh, an emergency protective order. And then later in a hearing, it was granted as a permanent protective order, which I was very grateful for. 
Um, one of the questions I was asking is how you get out of this, and I love that you shared that. And thanks to the, our police officers, I don't know where they get yeah. this kind of training. They're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I love that, you know, a prayer was answered um, through this police officer that helped you see things that rightly so you couldn't see in this situation, mm-hmm. even though you're smart and educated. And, <laughs> Yeah. And um, that there is a path out, and your path out was an emergency protective order that led to a permanent yeah. protective order that is the path to healing. Yeah. That's the right word. Not that you needed a change, but you needed a different path yeah. to be out of this situation and your kids. Yeah. And if you think about it, it honestly was like the best thing I could have done for him as well. Yeah. Because I, I truly believe that he, he would have done something he would have regretted. Yeah. And... I am so glad that I had the courage to do something that honestly protected everyone, him and me and the children. Yeah. And I think we all know that we can't be everybody's savior. You can't be the savior of your abuser. Yeah. um, Even if you're married to him. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so I think that's where you've um, recognized this emergency protective order. Yeah. Actually helped him. In the long run. And I think that's a good thing for us to reflect if we're in these difficult situations. We have to take care of ourselves, but getting us out of these situations may be the thing that actually helps the person get the help he or she needs. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of true charity, right? Is um, not denying, not bowing down in despair or helplessness, but actually being proactive and saying, this is bad. I know this is bad and I'm going to take steps towards that. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about for the last myth which is that what happens in a marriage is private. Um, there's nothing I can do to help. This was something that a lot of people were starting to see what was going on, but didn't know how to help. So I want to speak to the people who are not in it, but watching it happen. And yeah, to get some education around the legality, the law was very helpful for me and very, um, yeah, very helpful to help me see that this was beyond my capacity to end. So I have... Um, six things that I think will help if you're the family friend or if you're the one experiencing it yourself. Now I have a disclaimer here, which is sometimes it is actually more dangerous to intervene physically um, because what can happen is you can shut down the victim. If their trauma bond is very strong and you come in saying, you guys are an abusive relationship, let me help you get out. And it's your idea. They may become very defensive or deny again, what's occurring. So do this very delicately and definitely seek seek inspiration on this one. But the first one is just to start to talk. So if someone says they're fighting with their partner, ask them more questions. Say like, what do you mean by fighting? Like what happens? Um, I started to talk with other people and get a sense of what was normal and what wasn't normal in marriages. And that's what helped me realize like mine was far, far beyond what was normative. Um, The second thing is to believe them. I was so grateful for a friend when I finally said the words out loud, I think I'm in an abusive relationship. She was very careful about not speaking, you know, not judging, but she said, I I don't know if you are or you aren't, but let's act as if you are and let's go from there. Wow. And that was really helpful because she didn't judge him, but she also wasn't judging me. She just said, I'm going to believe you and let's, let's go with that. Wow. So that also helped begin like my exit plan. The third thing is to notice changes in a relative or a friend. Um, My sister's my best friend and she has later said that she noticed I was changing significantly, but thought that it was just maybe a normal change in a marriage or change because we had kids or change because of financial stress or 
she just thought maybe she's just changing. But she said in retrospect, there were several incidences where the change was so significant and so out of character that um, she said that would be her advice to a family member trying to get out is to notice changes and don't dismiss them as normal. If they're significant, there's something going on most likely. The fourth thing is to fill the life of the survivor or the victim with love. That was something that mattered a lot to me. I, I was stripped of my sense of self through so much emotional abuse that it was very easy for me to see how I was the problem for everything. But being surrounded by good friends and good people and remembering that I was a kind, happy, easy person. I had roommates say, you're easy to live with. You were a great roommate or mission companions. So if you have someone who's in an abusive relationship, increasing the love that they feel for themselves will help. The fifth thing is to normalize separation and therapy. As I said, couples therapy may not be the best first step, but individual therapy may be. And then the other one is you don't always have to go straight to divorce. Sometimes separation, we call it a healing separation in the therapy world. Sometimes separation does lead to divorce, and that may be the best thing. And other times you can separate in an effort to heal and then try again. So I think a lot of times people talk about marriage versus divorce, and I would highlight this, the gap between the two where separation can be a very beneficial time for both parties and for the children. Um, the sixth thing is don't seek to control the survivor. Like I said, if their trauma bond is strong, they'll actually dig in deeper. So never blame them or minimize them. Don't criticizing them say, oh, I knew it was a bad relationship or I told you so. Um, the statistics show that it takes the average person seven times to leave. Most dangerous time is the two weeks after they left their partner because the violence will usually escalate the most. So um, just be patient. Let them make their choices, even if you don't agree with it. And then I love the title of your podcast, like listen to people, love them. Try to learn about what's going on and learn how you can help them. And that's the best thing you can do. And then I just want to close with a quote from Elder Holland. He gave a great conference talk in April of 2021 that was about abuse. It's called Not as the World Giveth. And he says, everyone has the right to be loved, to feel peaceful, and to find safety at home. And that would be my wish for everyone is, again, if you're listening to this and you don't have love, peace, and safety in your home, that you have a right to find that and to get the support that you need to be able to build that. This has been a terrific podcast, Nicole. How do people connect with you? Do you have a website or? Yeah, I do. I have a website. It's herwaycounseling.com, just like my last name. <laughs> Can you spell that for us just in case? Yeah, so it's herway, H-E-R-W-A-Y, and then counseling, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G.com. And I do have an Instagram account. I'm not much of a social media person but it's hey her way so at hey her way and then you can also look me up on psychology today it's a really great resource if you're looking for a therapist who would specialize in this even if you're the supportive family member um, you can look me up on psychology today and like i said there's a lot of resources out there for people um, it's important to find support that um, allows you to make choices in your life that's the biggest thing that will help is to just start to take back who you are and remember that you're loved this is one for me listeners um there's a lot of groundbreaking material that i haven't understood um so thank you there's probably other people that feel this way but i'm especially feel grateful for your voice for people that are in the situation you were in three or four years ago 
bright, capable, wonderful people, deeply committed to their family, to their marriage, to their faith, terrific people that are in a situation that they don't know how to get out of. And they probably think they caused it somehow. And mm -hmm. um, it's their fault. And what you give to them is terrific. And I love this emergency protective order. I don't think either of us are inviting everybody in this situation, but in your situation, that was the first major step to get out of this situation. So I think I'd invite you to figure out what's your first major step to get out of this situation and act on the impressions you feel to do that. Um, I loved your idea of couples therapy and they may not be the right thing. Um, from a therapist standpoint and from also someone who needed this road, that's a very insightful insight because my, my natural thought would be, well, you need couples therapy. But I love where you taught if they're not safe, if one is not safe, then you need individual therapy. And that was very helpful because sometimes we have these, me being not familiar with the states would give everybody that's in a difficult marriage, well, go to couples therapy. And why that may not be the right thing for everybody, mm -hmm. especially when you're in a situation where someone masks like this person did during your whole engagement in a first part. They can obviously do that through couples therapy for a long time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that just causes us all to pause and wonder if we really understand what's going on in another situation. I love your advice and some of the people that hit home runs for you um, where they believed you and they were safe for you. And they didn't flip the conversation to them or talk about their story. Um, so those were just terrific. Um, listeners, the things we'll link to in the podcast show notes are Nicole Herway's website, um, Sister Clyde's um, comment, um, Elder Kieran's talk, Elder Holland's talk that um, was mentioned at the very end. Do you want us to? Do you want to talk about this circle one more time? Do you, yes. Should I list, link that in the podcast? Yeah, there's actually two circles. So I shared one called the Power and Control Wheel, which has um, it's a really good description of things that may occur in a marriage or a partnership where there is abuse um, that fall outside of physical or sexual violence, and there are those things like coercion or using threats or intimidation, things that are actually usually more common in abusive relationships and things to look for. And then in contrast, there's something called the power and control wheel, which educates people about healthy attributes of a relationship. So like I said, I'm a relationship trauma therapist, meaning I help people not only identify what's unhealthy about their relationship, but help them build healthy things in their relationship. And if the things that are healthy can be built, there's a lot more chance that they can work through this. Um, and it also helps people when they're dating. So I do a lot of like therapy for people in the dating world, helping them decide if someone is an equitable and healthy partner and the things to look for. So just as much as red flags are a concern, we also want to look at and strengthen the green flag. So we'll link to this um, so you can look at these two circles. One's the power and control and one's the equality. And um, as I'm just looking through them, they're terrific. So if you're wondering where you are, um, I think this is a way to sort of analyze where you are in your situation. Um, thank you for doing this podcast. I often read this quote. <laughs> listeners, your regular listeners know this, but it's Henry Norwin. I think of you, Nicole. Minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. And I, and 
and perhaps for a therapist with clinical training that hasn't had firsthand experience, they do have the ability to lead people out of this desert because mm. they've done the clinical work and the academic work to understand this space. But you have this other part of your story is you authentically know the pain of this desert. And I just love where you are in your life with your academic experience, your clinical experience, your life story, and that you're in this space healing other people. Thank you. At a young age, at least compared to my age, <laughs> and just a lot of wonderful years ahead of you. And I'm so grateful you reached out. Most of my guest listeners reach out and I sometimes don't quite know what to say because I'm not familiar with content like this. And I'm just so glad that Nicole reached out and that this content is coming to you, our listeners, so that we can do better. I've learned a lot. So this is Nicole Herway and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.